Hey folks, welcome back to the Brown Surgery Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kenneth Lynch. In this episode, I'm excited to have our departmental wellness coach, Dr. Daryl Appleton, on with me today as we dive into various topics surrounding wellness, including imposter syndrome, types of rest we should be engaging in, themes she's noticed in talking with our residents and faculty over the past few years, as well as some stress reduction techniques we can apply when time is a factor. So kick back and relax. We have a lot of great topics to discuss today, and I think you're really going to enjoy this one. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Daryl Appleton to the podcast today. Hi, Ken. How are you? I'm excited. This is exciting. Thanks for being here, Daryl. Before we get started, can you just go over your educational pedigree for us and tell us how you got to this point in your career? Yep. So my education, I was actually a communications major and a psych minor because like most college kids, I thought I wanted to do something completely different than what I ended up doing. I went to Stonehill College, which is a small liberal arts school in Easton, Mass., 20 minutes outside of Boston. And I went there because I played basketball. And after I played basketball, I went overseas and I played in Italy. And then I decided that the WNBA was not in my calling. And I went to get my master's at Providence College. I got my uh, certificate of advanced graduate studies in mental health at Salve Regina. And then my EDD, which is a doctorate um, in education at Johnson and Wales, which uh, was on leadership. And at that time, I, I had a mental health private practice. I didn't really know the direction I wanted to go in because I saw that with mental health, there was a lot of people with a lot of support if you were sick, but there wasn't a lot of support for a lot of people if you were well or well-ish. And that's literally what my dissertation was on. I started to look at executives and their executive presence and what that looked like in terms of wellness and work-life balance and found that, you know, spoiler alert, I'll save you the dissertation read. There's no such thing as work-life balance. Um, but the people who did really well in their careers as high performers and high burnout roles were more intentional about the way they took care of themselves, whether that was through reflection, whether that was through understanding what their body needed physically, emotionally, mentally. But there was this self-awareness in people. So my path was a little bizarre, but I, I think that it, it put me in a place where I love working with people with almost that athletic mindset because it really speaks to my background of who I am and people who are looking to get better in a way that makes sense for how their brains work and how they work. I would love to send everybody in the Brown surgery department on a retreat and give them time to rest and relax, but that's not going to happen. You know, a butler stay is something that we don't think of as a vacation, but if you were very sick, that's where we would put you um, in, in the mental health world, just like very much in the surgery department, like you have to go to surgery when things get bad enough. This is almost preventative of my role is how can we understand where you're at and get you to a better place to be better where you are and occupy that space a little bit more. You talk a lot about wellness and you've been working with our department for the last few years now. Before we dive into some of the, the questions that I, I know you're excited to talk about, I want to know how does Dr. Appleton define wellness and what do you mean when you try to convey this to your clients? I'm curious to hear your thoughts. For me, wellness very much is creating a life you don't want to escape from. I think Instagram and social media and just the pressures that we have from even our trainings at work sometimes to have balance or to be good at it all really puts us in this position of more burnout rather than understanding the integration piece or what I like to call sway of understanding like sometimes work needs priority, but sometimes life needs priority as well. And understanding the difference between the two is incredibly important. And most people don't know how to do that. They don't know how to self-reflect and understand when the red flags are creeping up in one area or another. 
So for my clients, it's getting away from the bubble baths and the, you know, oh, self-care by binge watching Netflix. Those are micro wellness strategies, but looking at the more macro of how can we create this environment, this life that you're not trying to constantly just make it to the next day or make it to, you know, your next vacation, but really embrace where you're at and, and fully integrate into the life that you're trying to live. How do you get away from that, though? I think, especially when you talk about residents, if they're post-call, it's easy to go home and, you know, get some rest, wake up, and then binge watch on Netflix, like you said. How do you force yourself to, like, get out of that mode and say, all right, I need to do something that's meaningful and it's going to help me reduce some stress or just feel better about myself? It's so funny because most of the residents in our one-on-ones and even the attendings when we're doing our coaching, they just kind of collapse after 24 or after, you know, a crazy call schedule. And that's a normal reaction to after running a marathon or or anything like that, our body physically wants to collapse. But for how long you rest in between matters and resting with purpose is also something that I think is incredibly important because there's a difference between sleep and rest. There's a difference between a body not moving and a body actively recovering. And I think some of these things are the things that we need to start putting into our own vocabulary, into our own teachings and practicing what we preach, whether we are chiefs or first years or attendings or parents or people. There's something about a person who knows how to take care of themselves that makes them better in the long run versus this person that works really, really hard and shines really, really bright and ends up burning out. We, we see it happen all the time. I see it happen in corporate, in medicine, in academia. And it's one of the ways that we get very much in the way of ourselves. Yeah. And I was going to talk a little bit about this a little later on, but just because you highlighted the importance of rest, I've heard you mention that there are various types of rest and intentional rest. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. This is one of my favorite things to talk about because it's kind of mind blowing to people because it's so simple, but at the same time, like who, who would have thought I I rest and I, you know, collapse into my Netflix hole. And like, that's how I rest. But there's different types of rest and there's a few of them, depending on who you ask, you know, there's as much as like seven, but we're going to kind of go through five or six. Um, Physical rest is kind of the main one. And we'll start there because I think this is the one that people understand the most. So physical rest can be active rest where you are walking your dog and you are getting out of the house or you are physically working out, that can also be a type of rest, just as much as not moving your body and physically putting it to rest. So physical rest is a real thing. Emotional rest, on the other hand, is a way that we can take ourselves out of having to be the strong person. So for people in my field, right, I talk to people all day. Sometimes when I get that phone call from my mom or my husband or a friend that's like, I just need to vent. There are times when I will say, can I call you back in an hour? Because I don't have the emotional bandwidth. That's a way of emotionally resting. I'm putting up a boundary. So I am not taking care of just another person. And it's a person I love and I want to help. But in that moment, I am no good to anybody. I know I need to rest there. So being caretakers, being, you know, practitioners and physicians, there's a huge element of always taking care of someone else. So that emotional piece of taking yourself away from that when appropriate and when you can is a way that you can actually rest. And I talk a lot about this with the residents and the attendings. There's not a lot of agency that we have over our lives when we are caretakers. It is somebody else's on their time getting sick. It's the page that goes off at 3 a.m. Very rarely do we have this time to ourselves 
this is where these boundaries come into place. Cause even if it gives you an hour, that is an hour where you can do something with it rather than feeling like you're indebted to somebody else in that moment when it isn't life or death. Mental rest is my favorite because as a new mom of twins, I find that a, my children have sucked all the omega three out of me. So I can't process as well as I used to, but also this mental rest, I see it a lot in couples counseling. And it's the dreaded question of what do you want for dinner? The reason why, what do you want for dinner is such a hard question is because people are emotionally and mentally exhausted. It is something that doesn't matter, but it feels monumental. So when you have mental rest, it is pre-packaging decisions. Whether this is on Tuesday, we have tacos and we do not deviate from the plan, or we do menu roulette where we pick a menu out of the drawer, that is a way to quell some of this emotional and mental angst and put it into a resting mode. It's one less decision I have to make. Yeah, those are fighting words. If I ask my wife, what are we doing for dinner? She just gives me the death stare. Like you said, you don't want to think about it. It's just another thing that's on your plate that you have to plan at some point throughout the day. Mm -hmm. So imagine if we rested with purpose by setting up those things beforehand. So it's one less thing to think about. That's just that much more energy to get through whatever it needs to get done. And I find that people, when they're fatigued, tend to make the worst decisions. That's when we go to the drive-thru at McDonald's. That's when we, you know, potentially are binge drinking or we are engaging in emotional fights with other people or we're not resting or we're over resting. So fatigue will also cause us to make poor decisions. This rest is a, a type, all of these areas of rest are a type to, to help us just calm and recenter so we can regroup and then move forward. Sensory rest is also very beautiful and underrepresented in the rest category because as physicians, as surgeons, there is so much noise constantly that you might not even notice. If you are a parent, there is so much noise that you might not even notice. So sensory rest literally means taking yourself out of overstimulation, whether that's I listen to a podcast on the way home, in my, on the bus, on the train, on the plane, on the car, however you get home, on my walk, where I listen to silence, just the breeze through my hair. There's a way to incorporate sensory rest in the small moments that you have where it is quiet. You cannot ask the OR to tone it down. You cannot ask your kids to be quieter. It just doesn't work. So we need to find these times of peace and quiet. It's up to us to be able to go to Obopan and put in our earbuds and listen to whatever, white noise, classical music, something that takes us out of our element. That is resting. We don't see it as resting and we might not have even tried it, but that is absolutely rest. Social rest is something that I think we've had a lot of with this pandemic, but I would argue it's quality over quantity. So for a lot of residents, a lot of attendings, it's hard to have a social life. So you can rest into social interactions by going out and being social as a type of rest. Or if you're being overly social, if your parents just came to visit, you have a full house you might want to take some time and regroup by not having anybody around for a bit if possible. So understanding who you're around and the energy that flows between people is documented. It's real. We need it, but also we can't have too much of it. And then the last two are creative and spiritual rest. Creative rest, I see a lot in my execs and marketing, people who are constantly you know, thinking their job is literally to be creative. Again, I bring up parents being creative of how to make all these things work, but also with physicians you, and, and surgeons, you guys are very creative. Problem solving is a huge part of what you do. Something happens in surgery, a piece of you know equipment breaks. You have to be very mindful of what you're going to do next. 
So not being creative, not having something to solve again, and these very much interrelate, but not having to go above and beyond. Like if your kids need to watch TV at home, then they need to watch TV. If you need to not put together a great outfit for that girls or guys night out or person's night out, then you don't need to do that. So doing what needs to get done and not feeling like you have to go above and beyond is a big element of creative rest. And spiritual rest is leaning into the fact that we're just a person on a rock floating in the middle of space. There's something nice about not being caught up in our daily lives, but instead just allowing ourselves the the lens of just being. We're, We're here and the macro, macro lens that sometimes we forget about what we're doing in our everyday lives, especially for you all is incredibly important, but it's not the only thing. It's not what you do is not who you are. And I think sometimes we forget that, especially when our jobs are so important to people and families and life. So I think those elements of rest are ways that if you are finding that you are struggling, ask yourself, what do I need? And you might come up with something on this list. Just like if you know, you're going to your doctor or your surgeon and you're telling them where it hurts, that this is the same thing. You need to identify where it hurts in order to have a treatment plan, a surgical plan moving forward to fix the hurt. This is no different. I like what you said there because I was going to ask you, yeah, how do you know when you need this certain type of rest? Like, is it on Tuesday at 7 p.m.? I need sensory rest. But I think <laughs> you just said it there. You really need to do like a self check of yourself and say, hey, where am I at? Am I struggling in one area versus the other? And then that'll sort of point you to one of the types of rests that you just mentioned. Yeah, it's very interesting to me when I work usually with the first years or the prelims. And then I speak with like the chiefs because I've been around now like three ish years. And it's interesting because I think insight does grow. As new residents, we're just trying to survive. And the conversations we have are literally about survival a lot of these times. How do I make it through? How do I overcome imposter syndrome? How do I prove that I deserve to be here? Those are really hardcore things. And again, that burning really bright thing, I think, starts to happen when I talk to my second, third, fifth years. And all of a sudden, it's like, okay, I just need to take a breath. Like, how do I make it through here? Like now I have to think about my next steps. Like, what am I doing? So insight comes, it doesn't just come with age. It comes with intention. So you can be a very insightful, intentional first year prelim, just as much as a chief, a chief of wellness even. So I think for everybody, it's about taking this time that if you don't understand who you are and what you need, you're doing yourself a disservice. You just mentioned speaking to, you know, multiple levels of residents from interns all the way up to PGY5s and interacting with our faculty. Are there any themes uh, since you've been working with us for a few years now that you've picked up on and have these surprised you? Did you say at the outset, I think I'm going to find this when I speak to these folks or this department, and yet you found something completely different? I'm just curious. You know, that's a great question. There are absolutely themes. I think for a lot of the residents as a whole, imposter syndrome comes up a lot. Our next talk will actually be on it. People feeling like they're going to find out I don't deserve to be here. They're going to find out I don't know what I'm talking about when that's not actually true. I also find that with new attendings, new attendings that I speak to also feel very similarly because they're in this new role. And I think we need to normalize that a little bit, that that's something that happens. You know, if you look at the research, there's actually research that just came out specifically with uh, surgery residents, but across the board, 80%, if not more at some point in their career, if not often feel like they are a fraud in where they are. So I think imposter syndrome was something that came up that I wasn't too surprised about. 
I think this idea of agency over self, the idea of doesn't look like how we think it's going to look. We're not going to have the freedom we once had, but instead we need to find small moments, five minute vacations, if you will. And the tips and tricks I give people, they seem so small. I'm like, go get a coffee. And they're like, what's that going to do? I'm like, it's the one decision you might make for yourself today. So go get a coffee. Take the long way home. I say it all the time. If you're on the bus, you know, take a different route. If you're walking, if you're driving, take the long way home and like give yourself that extra minute to transition literally from work to life. You know, I think the thing that surprised me the most was how much people felt, and it shouldn't have surprised me, but how much people felt like they couldn't not have it together. How much they felt like if they weren't perfect, that they were a bad surgeon or that they were failing something. And even with attendings, I should have all this together. And I think we get so enthralled with our work that all of a sudden, again, like who we are tends to dissipate because we're not feeding that part of ourselves. We are just surgeon. We are just practitioner. We are just caretaker. And a lot of times what starts to creep up are issues with our family, our relationships or our friends or something inside us that's not a surgeon tends to say like, hey, like I need a chance to drive and we don't know how to do that anymore. So I think that surprised me because it was happening so much, so often. And instead of listening to those voices, as schizophrenic as that sounds, we instead stuff it down and we don't let that person have an opportunity to enter the conversation at all. Yeah, and I don't want to take away from your talk, but you mentioned imposter syndrome. And I actually did some work over the last year with a national group. And it was amazing to hear the experience of new attendings explicitly saying that imposter phenomenon or imposter syndrome is a real thing and that they were experiencing it. And I think some of it was balancing their role as a new attending, wanting to be able to prove themselves to the residents that they were working with, that they had the skill set to take a resident through a case, but also trying to balance the relationship with the residents in the operating room and not wanting to offend them by doing too much of the case and not letting them do enough of it. So can you elaborate? Why are we so prone in medicine to imposter syndrome? Is that just something exclusive to us? Or do you see this with other clients outside of medicine? I see it with everybody. I work a lot with professional athletes, the Knicks, the Nets, the Jets. I have lots of New York teams, apparently, um, the Colts. And it's interesting because so many of them want so badly to perform because there are stats, like your job is on the line. Like if you don't perform, you don't have a place. My CEOs and executives that I work with, it's very similar. People are watching you and it matters. In medicine, not only does it matter for your job, especially if you're a prelim or, or even a new attending, it matters for the lives you're taking care of. So we're not talking about, did you win or not? Did you, you win the game? Did you, did you have a national championship? Did your company make a billion dollars over this year? It matters to the families and the people that you're taking care of. So I think the pressure there starts to set in. And we look at pressure as a foe to be defeated rather than as a friend to understand like, okay, like what is this doing to me? How do I mitigate it? This is a problem to solve. This is not something to beat or overcome. Like how do I allow it to have space in my house, but it needs to be trained as a guest in this house. So I think of things like pressure or even trauma as kind of like wild animals, like dogs. And I teach my clients a lot of times, like, you need to train this dog. You need to train this wild animal because it's there. It's not going anywhere. It can rip up your carpet and pee on your floor and, you know, get your shoes. Or you, when you tell it to go to its cage, it goes to its cage. So I think all of us have this imposter syndrome that, that lives within us and it bubbles up from time to time. How we respond to it 
how we talk to it and how we can respect that it is a force, but also put it in its place when needed. That's the skill set that I want people to have. It's not not to feel like an imposter. It's to know what to do when that feeling comes up. And again, like I think for you all in medicine, you guys are always like, but that's so small. It should be way bigger. And I'm like, no, no, you're missing, you're missing the point. You know, like you, you still have to start with this teeny tiny scalpel to like open people up. This is no different. Our worlds in soft science and hard science are very similar. Once we know where it hurts, we know then we need to put a plan in place. And then we start step by step. And sometimes it's the smallest step first. And that's where we start before we get to this, this bigger thing. So it's not oftentimes like this huge, like aha moment. Sometimes it's very small things. And a lot of it is faking it till you make it. Our brains don't know the difference between what's real and what's not. That's, that's up to us to set that narrative to. Moving to this other topic, you know, stress reduction is something that I've heard you speak a a lot about, and we try to encourage in our program with both residents and faculty. And I think everyone has their own way of dealing with stress and how to manage your your stress level. Can you discuss some of the techniques that you've either spoken to our residents and faculty about, or just ways that we can reduce it, especially, you know, we're all on a tight schedule here and you can barely find time to, to get some rest. How do you deal with stress reduction on a tight schedule? It's hard because I think of stress as the bill that comes due. We all have it, just like our rent, our mortgages, like it's there. What matters is what's in your bank account. Can you afford it? And for me, I teach a lot of people to look at energy like a bank account. Energy in, expenditures in, out, return on investment. It's very financial on some level. So if you look at all of the things that you are spending energy on, and my air quotes are out, then you want to see like, where are you getting energy in in return? So yeah, you have stuff that needs to be done. You're on a 24, like, yeah, you signed up for this. And that's very real and not validating at all, but it's the truth. Like, yes, some things we have to tough out, but what are you doing to fill your cup? And I think a lot of people like to come to me and they're like, oh, we need to change the system. We need to do this. Sure. Some of that might be true, but I always look back at the individual being like, cool, what are you doing? What are you doing in this? So I think first and foremost, we need to understand that stress lives in our lives and it's not going to go away. And second, we need to understand that we are the masters of our domain. If you let stress run your house, then that is on you. Like burnout is on us on some level. Again, I know we're going to get a lot of hate for this. It doesn't mean that systems aren't broken. It doesn't mean we can't do better as organizations. It just means very much we need to be the change we want to see in the world first. So I think that when we're talking about stress reduction techniques, we need to take accountability. We need to understand what is draining us, what bills are due that we are not going to change, and what are we doing to bring, quote unquote, income in? What are we doing to bring energy in? So again, if you are resting in the ways that are appropriate, you might find that that 24 looks a little bit different because you are taking intentional times to rest. You are getting yourself into the fresh air and taking a deep breath and not having anybody talk to you for five minutes, or you are telling the people in your life, like I'm on a 24, let's just have a buffer zone for the next 48 hours for any major decisions. Or like I'm saving up my money. I'm getting takeout for this week because I know it's a stressful week, or I'm hiring extra childcare to help out because I know that this is coming. So planning when we can for stress is a really great way where we don't feel slapped upside the face for it. If we don't know it's coming, because sometimes that happens, like things happen, especially in the world of medicine, I think there's ways that we can, again, have agency over ourselves and over our lives in that moment because stress makes us feel out of control. So getting control back is the biggest thing in stress reduction. 
knowing and teaching yourself that even though you are managing something that's out of your control, you are in control to how you respond to it. So this could be like we talked about in one of our previous talks of changing your narrative, looking at it through a different lens, something as simple as changing. I have to do X, Y, and Z to, I get to do X, Y, and Z changes your lens a lot. Again, I have one-year-old twins, but I'm like, I just, I have to change another diaper or like this, this kid just threw up on that kid. I have to go do this. I find myself becoming not resentful to my children, but like resentful to the process. But when I'm like, you know what? I won't be doing this forever. Like I get to do this now. Like there's going to be a day when they're like, mom, don't touch my shirt. Like I can put it on myself. That helps me get through that moment. And it doesn't mean it's not hard. It doesn't mean that I am not exhausted. It just means like when I change the story, when I change the narrative, it makes it a little bit easier to push through because I have a different lens in which I'm looking at things. We all got into our professions for a reason, especially as surgeons. What got you there? And igniting that passion in times when you need a little extra turbo boost, that might be helpful to get you through. It is a Band-Aid on a bullet hole. You cannot leave it and just be wildly optimistic all the time. Like That's toxic positivity. It doesn't work. It's not helpful. But in certain moments when we need to put you know, a tourniquet on, that's what we need to do until we can get to that rest part, until we can get to that bigger part where we can do more because we have more time, energy, help, whatever it is. So a lot of times it's just making it through until you get to this clearing where you can start to really take care of yourself. Those are great points. I think what you just mentioned is important too, because we have a lot of residents and faculty who are married, who have kids and who are stressed out at times and going home and having to deal with children and or your spouse and some of the issues that they're dealing with in their work life comes up a lot for our residents also. I mean, how do you work that with your partner? Or, or those in your space when you exit the hospital? Is that something like you try to come up with the schedule together and say, we're going to work on our emotional rest this week or our social rest this week? Yeah, how to get them engaged with some of these tactics that you so eloquently described to our residents and faculty? That's a great, great question because it is very hard to get multiple people on board with certain things that they might have conflicting ideas about. I know my husband's a podiatric surgeon. So sometimes when he comes home, I'm like, here's a kid, take a kid, clean. And he's like, I just, I just got in. So we developed a system where he needs time to transition, whether that's him taking the long way home, he needs to let me know so I can buffer in some more emotional and mental time and energy into knowing like, okay, it's going to be an extra 10 minutes. But then when he walks in the door, like I get to go take a shower or whatever it is. And it can be very specific like that where you guys are a partnership and understanding that if you are in a rowboat, sometimes one person needs to row while the other person rests and recuperates. Sometimes both of you are rowing. You do not want to be rowing in opposite directions though, because that is when I see people in my office for couples counseling because it's no longer working. I also see it on the business side too, to be fair, when people in, whether it's on the same team, whether it's, you know, attending, attending, or, you know, in the corporate world, business partners, it happens in any type of partnership. What are we trying to do? What is the plan to get there? And how do we execute that? So it doesn't necessarily need to be like at 7 p.m. on a Tuesday, we're going to do X. It might look like when the kids are in bed, like what does this month look like? When can we schedule time for ourselves? Do you have a crazy week? Let's talk about expectations. And being the spouse of a surgeon, I think a lot of that communication is important because I need to know from my end what to expect 
and then buffer in times knowing when Jimmy's on call or when, you know, other things are happening, you know, if he has got a difficult case this week and just being aware that it might impact some of the plans that we have on his end, being a surgeon, it's also important for him to understand that he is more than what he does as a job. He has a family and a wife. So it's us putting in protected time when we can with our vacations, with the time off, knowing he's not on call, whatever it is. And I know as residents, there's not as much of that luxury, but I know that you guys have vacation. I want to know what you're doing with it. I want you to make it count quality over quantity here. So I think it's things like that, that partners can get on board with, as well as really truly communicating about things. Nine times out of 10, when I work with couples, one person will say things like, you know, clean the kitchen. And the other person will be like, I clean the kitchen and their operational definition of clean is off. If you're finding that you and your partner are constantly in the same fight about things, I want you to go back and figure out what word is not being properly defined and then go through and define it together. What does time together mean to you? Because for your partner, it might mean one thing and for you, it might mean another. You know, what does vacation look like for both of you? So things like that, I think are important to make sure that you guys are on the same page and have the same expectations. Before we wrap up, you've done a great job speaking with residents and faculty over the last couple of years, but I'm sure there's a percentage of our residents and our faculty who still haven't 100% bought into the fact that there is this concept called wellness and there's things that we could be doing to take better care of ourselves, our overall care of ourselves. What would you say to those residents, faculty, whoever's listening to this podcast, just to say, hey, you're here as a service to our department. How would you get them on board with what we're trying to do here? I would say, come make an appointment with me and uh, let me see if we can change each other's minds. If you can prove to me that there's no wellness, then I will leave you alone. But if I can prove to you a little bit that there's something that you can do, maybe you get something out of it. I think uh, a lot of times people are hesitant to ask for help because it's that stigma. It makes them look weak or that means something's wrong. I promise you, I tend to work with people where things are not wrong. We want to make sure things continue to stay on the right track. It's kind of that that medicine part of things. You go for your annual checkups. This is no different. And if you have it all figured out, I had a conversation not too long ago where somebody was great. Nothing was wrong. Everything was perfect. I want to know how. And I want to bottle it and I want to sell it. And we can become billionaires together of how you do everything. And you know, you feel fantastic and great. And if that's the reality, that's the reality. If you're finding like you need help in the sense that you're looking for an outside opinion that's not your boss, that's not your coworker, that's somebody that actually might know one or two things about some strategies that you can do, then it's worth the call because why would you try to struggle alone knowing that you have an opportunity for help? Well, Daryl, I want to thank you for joining me today and discussing some of the efforts that you've put forth in our department around wellness and talking with our residents and faculty about. I'll link a lot of the videos that you've done thus far to this podcast, an article on imposter syndrome, and I'll also ultimately link the the great talk that you're going to give in the near future on imposter syndrome to this podcast. Thanks for everything you've done and helping our residents faculty conceptualize this concept and, and trying to take better care of themselves. And Ken, thank you. You do wonderful things for this department as well. And your efforts do not go unnoticed. They're very lucky to have you. Thank you for having me. I love having these conversations. I am here. Anybody needs me in any capacity. So thanks again to Dr. Appleton for joining me today to discuss this important topic. I will link some of the articles pertaining to today's episode in the description, as well as Dr. Appleton's contact information if you would like to reach out to her. 
We have a bunch of great content lined up in the next few months as we get ready for our Chief Resident Podcast Project, where we will cover such topics as what it takes to be a competent general surgery resident and global surgery research, to name a few. If there are specific topics in our specialties you would like me to dive into on this podcast, please email them to me. My email will be in the description. Have a great week, and I'm looking forward to having you back with us in the next episode of the Brown Surgery Podcast. Thank you.